we're dealing with is what we're dealing with previously. Now we're dealing with tshuva. Tshuva is something which is a very common topic in Elo because everyone's scared of Rosh Hashanah. You know, of course, when I say everyone, I don't mean really everyone, but there are a few people still, remnants, who are scared of Rosh Hashanah. And we say it's a bit of a, it's a bit, it becomes a bit of a farce because people who take Rosh Hashanah seriously, so they really don't know what to do with it. So what do they do? They say, okay, we've got to do tshuva. And then they say to themselves, well, what is tshuva? Or how can I do that? Or who cares? And then they say to themselves, no, but we've got to do it. Well, why do you got to do it? Because it's a big day and then people kind of, kind of get themselves all riled up. Today of judgment. <laughs> and then you get really scared. So it's almost as if someone comes to you and puts a gun to your head and says, do tshuva now! And you say, I don't want you to do it. And you say, too bad, you don't have a choice. Otherwise I shoot. So then a person is put into a bit of a predicament because tshuva is an act of sincerity. So insincere tshuva is absolutely worthless because tshuva is based on looking at a certain relationship that you had to the Creator and thinking, gosh, I can't go on like this. This is horrible. I mean, this is a Creator that I meant to... He's the master of all worlds. He's the deepest, most wonderful, most beautiful thing in the world. And I'm kind of like treating him as an absolute aside in my life. That's absolutely absurd. That's, that's sincerity. But if someone says to you, You have to love God and appreciate Him. I'm going to shoot your head out. Fine, I love Him. I love Him. I love Him. I want you to love Him. I love Him as much as you tell me I love Him. Fine, I love Him. Do you really love Him? No. So that's a problem. So how do we use, how do we relate to the notion of Rosh Hashanah from a healthy perspective which won't cause us to become depressed as we discussed in detail last time, guilty? And how do we use it as a means of spiritual growth and upliftment. The first thing we have to realize, and this is so crucial, I don't know if any of you have davened Rosh Hashanah before, but if you pay attention to the thrillers, they are an exercise in frustration. Because everyone tells you that Rosh Hashanah is the big day where everything is judged and decided upon. So what I would have liked to have done would have a shopping list <laughs> of everything I need for the next year. I want this type of income. I would like this type of whatever the situation is job, chavusa, marriage, relationships, car mm. I, I would like to go into the Creator and express my own personal desires and if you go through the entire Rosh Hashanah liturgy there is no room even once for you to express what you want it never says, there's no big chapter in the Twitter which says okay guys go for it, ask whatever you want that's absurd. If the whole point is the day of judgment and you're coming before the king and you're saying to him, listen, what can I want? So then why? So the truth is, I told you this in regard to Tisha B'Av, but it's really, at the time we said it's relevant for Hashanah, so I'm going to have to repeat it. And for those of you who have heard it before, um, I've only got three or four shirim, so, <laughs> so you're going to hear a lot of things again and again and again. It's only the people that stay here for a week that really get the full benefit. <laughs> there were two people. <coughs> Remember it? Time for the job. Ah. Here you go. It's the longest marshal ever, <laughs> ever. I'll I'll condense it. There's no king in this one. There's no king. There's no castle. It's disappointing. But let's start. <laughs> it's for Tisha B'Av, but we can use it for Rosh Hashanah as well. As I said, I've got three shirim. I have to make them fit into all the yom and <laughs> Tisha B'Av, it's Rosh Hashanah, it's Sukkot, it will be Shvuas. And this is how it goes. This is how it goes. There's, there's an amazing job offer made. Um, 
Our protagonist, his name is Simon Kirtland. Simon Kirtland is paging through the newspaper one morning at breakfast. Now he's extremely well qualified. He's just finished his B MBA <coughs> at Wharton Business School. And he's looking through the paper, looking for potential um, job prospects. And he comes across the most amazing offer. There's a plan of urban renewal in a small African country where they're going to completely put in the entire infrastructure for the starving masses. It's completely government-sponsored. It's backed by world um, refugee organizations. It's an amazing project. And he perks his, uh, piques his interest. He decides to go off to the, um, the CEO's office in downtown Manhattan for the interview. He arrives dressed obviously crisply and waits in the comfortable leather couch as he um, prepares himself for the, for the interview. The CEO calls him into his office. He walks in and he sees the CEO sitting on his leather swivel chair in front of him with a mahogany desk. And the CEO looks at him and he says, so, um, Simon, he says, that's me. He says, I'm so glad that you came. I've looked, at your, I've looked over your CV and you seem an extremely qualified and talented young man. Simon smiles, smiles modestly. He says, let me just give you a bit of a background to the project. And he describes in detail what they plan to do. And they're going to completely revamp the small, desolate, impoverished African country. Put in hospitals and roads and electricity. And it, it sounds like an astonishing project. And Simon looks at him and he says, it sounds amazing. What are you offering? So he says, well, look, this is your starting salary. And he says, what about the housing allowance? And he tells him, and he says, what about the car allowance? And, he, and what about education for my kids and he goes through all the and then he gives an old package and Simon says look that sounds like a very very good package um, you know I'm interested um, we can be in touch CEO says thank you Simon this is a real pleasure meeting you and uh, yes we will be in touch uh, you've given me your contacts sure he has my card see ya and off he goes down the lift and elevator and <laughs> he's off his friend Richard Wilson, also qualified the same year as him in Wharton Business School, <laughs> of very similar ilk, also applies for the job. Walks into the CEO office, must have been 15 minutes later, and the CEO goes through the same procedure and describes his project of completely revamping this small desolate country. And as the CEO is describing what they plan to do, he sees a change in Robert's face. He changed his name. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Wilson. He changed, um, he sees a change in his face. He sees that the more he describes the project, it's almost as if Robert, who used to be Richard, can't can't contain himself. He's like he's sitting on the edge of his chair, and he's he's almost he's he's agitated with excitement. And before the CEO can, he, he says, "I want." He says, "That's amazing! What what an incredible project! That that is something that I would love to be a part of. That's an amount. Please, could I?" So the CEO says, "Listen, you know, you do have the qualifications, but you know, we will be offering a start." He says, "It doesn't matter, and we will be offering." It doesn't no, tell me. Just it's an amazing project. I want to devote myself to that. That sounds that's incredible. And the CEO kind of manages to squeeze in it. By the way, you'll be getting this amount of salary. And this, now, who does the CEO hire? Clearly, your employee, Robert. Robert. 
no question, because he believes in the project. Robert gets the job. How about Richard? Richard ceased to exist. Um, now, Simon, Kirtland, he, he's left by himself <coughs> sipping a very strong espresso coffee the next morning, and he's also again glancing through the paper as he looks down onto Central Park from his <coughs> high-rise building, and he sees there's a similar advert for a very similar job. It actually is in another African country neighboring the previous one. And he's astonished by the coincidence, and he goes for the second interview. And this time, there's no Robert Stroke Richard waiting um, in the wings to come forward. And Simon gets the job, and ironically, both Simon and Robert head off to Africa on the same plane, sitting next to each other and discussing their potential careers. And they both land and they start working, and the project in both countries is going extremely well. In fact, it's very difficult to tell the difference in motivation and intention of these two talented young men. They both go ahead and they run the project in a very, very well-ordered, astute manner. And the project goes ahead, and the truth is, within two years, the entire project is nearing completion in both countries. And they have this major celebration at upon its inauguration, and both these uh, young men are called upon to be guests of honor. And the project, with much fanfare, is opened, and they are thanked deeply and of course they are expecting their salary when they return home and they both get onto the plane back to New York City. What they don't realize is while they're on the plane there is a tragedy. They're both <coughs> these new projects are built along a fault in the, in the land and there's an earthquake. And while they are safely in the air, both projects are raised to the ground, destroyed, with nothing left. They arrive at Kennedy Airport, and they both switch on their cell phones and listen to their messages. And it's Robert that listens to his message first. And it's the CEO <coughs> from the company telling him the bad news. And he says, Robert, um, this is a message from the CEO. I just want to, you shouldn't be shocked, but unfortunately there's been a tragedy and there's been an earthquake. And when he has those words, his countenance changes and he thinks to himself, gosh, I hope that doesn't affect my paycheck. And the CEO says, don't worry, we are still in good financial shape and we'll be able to pay out in full. He breathes a sigh of relief and puts away his phone. <laughs> Simon is Robert and Robert is Simon. <laughs> Sometimes a teacher has to deliberately switch things in order to make sure people are listening. Let's just replay that. Of course it was Simon. Simon switches on his cell phone. Gosh. And he has a message from CR. And he says, provide his salary is in check. He's not too worried. Puts on the phone and everything's good. Robert on the other hand switches on his cell phone, he has the message, and his face changes dramatically. There's been an earthquake, an earthquake, and the project raised to the ground, and he actually drops to the floor and starts to sob uncontrollably. He can't, he can't believe it, he cannot believe it. All the potential, the future, the people will be given those facilities. He actually is, he doesn't even bother to have the end part of the message that he's going to get paid for. He doesn't care. The project is down in ruins. 
That is the long-winded marshal that Chalmers is afraid of, and that was used to apply to Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is, is the destruction of the temple, but the point is as relevant for Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is not about the individual, it's about the global, the universal. It's about the relationship of the individual in the global mission statement of the company. The first aspect of tshuva is to realize, and it's a very tough realization to come to, that spiritual growth is not the same as self-actualization. Even though it may be a gigantic overlap between the two. The first step in tshuva is realizing the point is not that I should be okay. It's that there's something bigger than me that's going on. As long as a person in his relationship to spirituality is involved in a self-indulgent process of what is my spiritual state? Am I doing okay? Is this appropriate for me? He has no connection to the bigger spiritual picture and he has no connection to Rosh Hashanah. Because if you look at the tefillahs in Rosh Hashanah, the prayers, all they do is describe this incredibly powerful global vision of the ideal world. And what essentially Rosh Hashanah is, it's a job interview that our two applicants went to. Rosh Hashanah is, Hashem says, listen, I've got a mission statement that I would like to declare to you. I would like a world where there is no injustice. I would like a world where there is no perversion. I would like a world where there is love and brotherhood, understanding and compassion. I would like a world where there is a knowledge of the depth and beauty of the Creator. I would like a world where there is a connection to the one that fashioned it. At that point in time you can say, well, how much are you paying? <laughs> Tell me, like, what am I going to get out of it? What are you offering? Health? Okay, I'll do it. Wealth? Vavakasha. Or you can say, I want that world as well. If you say, I want that world as well, Hashem says, I want you on my team. If you want to work for me, I want you to work for me. The whole point of Rosh Hashanah and Elul and Shiva is understanding the value of the bigger system that we are a part of. The whole point of tshuva is coming to realization that there's something outside of myself. There's a world. One of the deepest and darkest tragedies is a narrowness of self. Where all my concerns are absorbed up into my petty concerns, my petty needs, even if they are of a spiritual nature. My shachris. And that's what creates the absurdity of people who come in to many people have been turned off religion because they come to a shul <laughs> and they've like finally overcome the obstacle after years of struggling and they walk into a shul and they sit down and they said I did it and someone comes up to them and said you're in my seat <laughs> I need a dove in there it says so get out that's called a loss of perspective a loss of perspective when a person's religious engagement is self-indulgent that is not called a connection to Torah that's called a connection to a base animalistic desire called the passion for religiosity 
translated into Yiddish Frumkeit. There is a Yetzirah, an inclination, a base animalistic desire which exists within all of us, like all our desires, which has its productive place, but essentially it drives us to a non-thinking approach to religion. And it makes us completely inconsiderate in religion of anyone else but ourselves. And therefore it's all about my mitzvahs and my davening and my... And no one else actually comes onto your radar screen. And therefore, one of the first pathways of Chiva is realizing a bigger picture, Matt. You want to ask something? Are you following me? It's a very dangerous, even though again, it can be very productive. Without it, the person can have no passion. But if it's ungar, if it's untempered by the rational approach, if it's if it's left to its own devices, it will be the most destructive. And ironically, the passion for religion will destroy your real connection to Creator to the Creator, to the spirituality. The desire for spirituality will be self-defeating. There's a story told by a very special woman who studied meditation for many, many years. And after years and years of reaching different levels <coughs> of meditation, she managed to reach a state of sublime spirituality. And as she was in that state, someone barged into the room, disrupted her attention, and she lost it completely. When that happened, she blew up on the person and said, What have you done? At a later stage in her life, she became a Balas and she recalls an event which she says was of far greater spiritual grandeur. She turned on the computer one morning and she's a writer and she received an email from a relative who wasn't religious and the relative went on a rant against her saying what you've recently published is abhorrent it's offensive, it's fanatic, it's fundamentalist, it's primitive, with every type of negative description. She read the email and she was furious! What she wanted to do, and she has a way with words, is to write back, tit for tat, an email absolutely destroying this relative saying, you think I'm bad? I remember when you were a little girl, you disgusting selfish slum bucket etc. Instead, she said, and then I recalled, and then I recalled, that it says in the Torah, you should not exact revenge. So I was furious inside, but I didn't write back to the email. And I walked around my house and I calmed myself down, but through my mind there were messages playing and they were saying, I can't believe that woman, I never trusted her, she was always an outcast of the family, and all these <coughs> negative images. And then she realized that it says in the Torah, you're not allowed to hate your brother in your heart. And she actually had to change those tapes. 
So she had to switch the tapes playing in her head, and she had to start to think about all the good things, all the good things that this person had done for her. And she started to process, and she started to remember pleasant childhood memories, and she started to develop a warmth and a. And at the end of it, she was so pleasantly predisposed to this woman. She went back to the computer, and she wrote her letter, and she said, "I'm really sorry I offended you. I had no intention of doing so." And I really hope that this won't affect our relationship in the long term because I really value you. The next day she got an email back and she said, of course, I'm sorry I was just having a bad day. That's an act of spiritual greatness. Because had she responded on the spot, she could have kissed that relationship goodbye. We've been gone. Because she would have responded and then it would have created a cycle and then the next time there would be a family simcha, I'm not inviting her, and then and generations will be split apart. That's a moment of extreme spiritual greatness. That's called the spirituality which exists outside of self. That is the first step in the right direction to connecting beyond the self-indulgent spirituality which is so pervasive in the walls of many a yeshiva. Rosh Hashanah doesn't allow for that because it's not about me. There's no room for personal prayer. To the degree that I can relate to that which is beyond me, that it pains me to see a world in disarray, is the degree to which I can connect to what the Twillers have to say to me. Any questions until this point? Good. So, I would like to start to perhaps discuss how that works practically. <coughs> practically speaking, it's extremely natural to think about ourselves above all else. How do we reverse the natural thought process to actually come into terms with other people around us? A convert comes to Shammai Hazokain convert at the time he wasn't a convert a non-Jew comes to Shammai Azokeh the great Shammai and he says convert me to your Torah Shammai says okay but what are your criteria what are your he says on the condition you can do so you can teach me the entire Torah while standing one foot very famous Gemara in Shabbos teach me the entire Torah while I'm standing on one foot Shammai pushes him away not to be discouraged he goes off to Shammai's colleague Hillel Azokain and he goes to Hillel and he says Hillel teach me the entire Torah while I stand on one foot Hillel says that's not a problem what is hateful to you do not do to others the different commentators interpret this to mean the verse of you should love your fellow man as yourself he says that kolatarakula. That's the entire Torah. The rest, ve'idach, perusha, zil gemara. The rest of it is just an explanation of that. Go learn. Now these words of the gemara are astonishing. What does it mean? The whole Torah is what's hateful to you. You shouldn't do it to your friend. That's the whole Torah. That's not the whole Torah. What about meat and milk? What about tefillin? What about cities with racing stripes? What about? Yamukas and payers. What about long, curly, silvery beards? 
What about shuffling up and down in front of the Gemara? What about those long prayer services? What about Pesach Seder by night? What about Chanukah? What about Purim? What about... No, that's all That's all One of the great commentators says the following fascinating idea. He says, how can a person ever strive to be at the level whereby any person you come in contact with you have an intuitive love for them. You haven't met them yet. But as they walk into your presence, you love them. I've met a man like that. <coughs> there was a man, there was a great tzaddik, his name was Rabbi Arya Levi. There's a book written about him called The Tzaddik in Our Times. He was legendary in his acts of chesed and his, his, his righteousness. I was once in a taxi, after reading the book, but I happened to be in a taxi, and the taxi driver was wounded in the Sinai campaign. And he happened to be in the hospital room at the time when Reb Arya was sick. And Reb Arya asked specifically to be placed among soldiers. Because he wanted to share their pain. And often people would come to consult with him. And the soldiers, out of respect, would say, do you want us to leave the room? And he went, my children, you leave the room. If anyone, I should leave the room. And obviously he had such a deep impression on this man that 30, 40 years later he still remembers fondly. So this man was a tzaddik. He had a son, before Binyamin, used to sit in a shore in the next to the shuk and used to uh, receive people for a couple of hours a day and I used to go to him I went to him quite a few times there was an amazing sense is that when you looked at him and he looked at you you felt absolutely enshrouded by love and it always puzzled me how could he love me he's never met me before truth is maybe that's why <laughs> and he know me <laughs> <laughs> but how can you how can you generate you could feel it it was on an emotional dynamic level you could feel it how, how is it possible he doesn't know me so this is an idea which I'm only aware of intellectually because obviously I'm not there to have experienced it I've experienced it once in my life but beyond that not in a, in a way well I'm going to that but this is what the commentator says he says that the way that love works what creates attraction between two disparate bodies is when they find that sense of commonality between them. Likes attract. So when you find something that you, you connect to, that you can relate to, so it pulls you towards that. The greater the likeness, the more you pull towards it. Ultimately, love, the Hebrew word ava, is the same numerical value as echad, one. Because both are synonymous that love breeds a oneness between people and the oneness is created by the overlap, the similarity, the likeness now as people we are diverse from one another we're all so so different but the truth is there's a certain level where there's a depth of connection which completely transcends all, transcends all our differences that point is the point which goes way beyond our physical appearance it goes beyond our emotional makeup it goes to the source of who we are it's called our neshamas our souls the point of the neshama which is a transcendental point of being it's the being which is almost so hard to grasp but so ever present it's the me that exists before i think before i feel before i do it's the sense of being in its raw state that's the neshama undiluted that neshama and someone else's neshama have this incredible overlap, this incredible connection. 
when I can relate to, respond to, and identify with that sense, with that component of self, the disparity, the difference between us completely dissolves. I feel completely bound to you. Because you and I, at that level, are completely connected in a way that you couldn't be a deeper connection. Says this commentator, means in order for it to be effective that every single <coughs> fellow Jew you come in contact with you feel the sense of closeness it must be that your connection to soul is so profound that it's where your central identity lies the only way of reaching that spiritual height is through the performance of all the other mitzvahs all the mitzvahs are there to facilitate that spiritual awareness that when you can have such a cognizance of neshama that the connection between you and someone who's outside of you feels like you won. And that's what Hillel meant when he spoke to that potential convert. He said, the whole Torah is to get to the level where you're totally connected to those around you. Because that's the ultimate level. Everything else is just a commentary and explanation of how to do that. Why do you say it is a negative, not positive? Side question. Good. But the point is that the building blocks of soul will always reflect themselves in the connection to those outside of us. And therefore, as selfish as our religious observance is, it shows it's not a result of connection to true neshama, but to some external trait which exists outside of our essential being. So. Um, I realize that I've gone on way too long. I realize that you're probably bored and hungry and tired. And um, I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to stop and put you out of your misery. And then you don't ever have to come back again. But of course, if you want to, so then there's more boring stories waiting. We can, of course, again, we'll have to apply today's marshal to <laughs> Yom Kippur and Sukkot. <laughs>